Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. L.E. Luigi, the enemy cannot have victory. There is a way. Amen. Praise Jesus. Okay, the subject today is Veterans of the Bible. Here in America today, it is Veterans Day. And I know that it's not Veterans Day in America, I mean, in Korea or Australia, but in the United States, it's Veterans Day today. And I believe that people of all nations can uh, respect one another, honor one another for their. Uh, individual national holidays as far as the ones that are acceptable to God. And Veterans Day is acceptable to God. There's no pagan origin to it. There's nothing evil about it. It's just a day that the Americans are recognizing the military, recognizing the men and women that have given their lives throughout history for freedom and have fought all across the world and are stationed in Korea. Americans that are stationed in the Philippines and different nations all across the world. And, and no, this is not necessarily an American thing. It is a good thing to honor people. It is a good thing to give honor to those that deserve honor. And it's a good thing to respect uh, the military. It, it, the military should be respected as long as you're not living in a nation like Russia and China where it's communist and dictator and an evil regime. But if your nation is not an evil regime, then it would be a good thing to respect your military. Today, we're going to talk about the veterans of the Bible, men and women in the scripture. We're going to start in Exodus 14. So I'll give you a minute, a couple of minutes there for everybody to turn to Exodus chapter 14. And as we read this chapter of Exodus 14, Let's read it in the light of, first of all, God being the captain, the captain. I'm going to work on that word. Remind me, Brittany, you're going to have to work with me on uh, learning English of how to pronounce that word. Captain of the army. He is our general. He is the head, the chief of the uh, military of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is a military man, and people need to think more often than they do of God as being a military commander and a military leader. So we're reading this Exodus 14 in the light that God is the leader of the army of God and that underneath him, Moses also was a leader of an army of a military. So starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and let them turn and encamp before the village, before Magdal and the sea, opposite of Baal Sapra. Before them shall you encamp by the sea. I'd like for you to underline the word encamp. 
that appears two times in that verse of verse two. The reason I would like for you to underline in camp is because I want to explain what that word means in the pale Hebrew and in the Greek and in the context of this chapter so that we can make corrections later in the chapter, considering that it's using the word in camp. What it means is the location of a army, the encampment, the, the, the station or the, uh, the location where the army has uh, 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 situated itself, lo located itself for a day, for a time, for a season, for its military battles, whether it's pulling back or pulling forward or waiting or, or wherever they may be located for that moment. The, the, the encampment in a military sense. So verse 3 Pharaoh would say to his people, as for these children of Israel, they are wandering in the land for the wilderness or the desert has shut them in. And I will harden the heart of Pharaoh and he shall pursue after them. And I will be glorified in Pharaoh and in all of his host and all the Egyptians shall know that I am Jesus. And they did so. Now that word host, all of his host talk about all the host of Pharaoh can be translated many, many different ways, including the words multitudes and the word armies. Uh, and sometimes it can be translated as universe, meaning all of the host of heaven, all of the universe. So in this context, all of his host of Pharaoh would be meaning all the armies of Pharaoh uh, in this context. So you've got the word encamp, such as encampment, a location of the army, and the word host referring to the armies of Pharaoh. So we must understand this as a military battle. We must understand this as a, a war, that the armies of Pharaoh are going to attempt to attack the Israelites. So we also must realize that not only was Pharaoh's military considered an army, but I'm going to show you a reason why we could consider the congregation of Israel also as an army. Now, these people were slaves that had just been freed, just being freed from slavery. They didn't have guns or cannons or missiles, but they were an army of over a million people. And God had sent Moses as a deliverer and as a leader, as a general of the army of Israel. And, and Moses had to stand face to face with the Pharaoh, which was king of Egypt. Moses and Aaron both had to stand face to face with the king of Egypt and declared the word of the Lord, said, let my people go to worship, to keep the fiestas in the wilderness, to keep the Passover in the wilderness, in the desert. And Pharaoh rejected that command of God. And so Moses and Aaron delivered the judgment upon Pharaoh, upon Egypt, upon the population through the 10 plagues. 
So we can look at the 10 plagues as being the missiles of God, the bombs of God, the attack of God upon the nation of Egypt. We're going to see scriptures that declare God as a leader of an army. And so when we continue to read this chapter, let's look at it in the light of God being leader of the army and Moses being the leader of the army. Verse 5, and it was reported to the king of the Egyptians that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh was turned and that of his servants against the people. And they said, what is this that we have done to let the children of Israel go so that they should not serve us? So Pharaoh yoked his chariots and led off all his people with himself. Verse 7, having also taken 600 chosen chariots and all the cavalry of the Egyptians and rulers over them. And Jesus hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and of his servants. And he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went forth with a high hand. And the Egyptians pursued after them and found them encamped by the sea. And all the cavalry and the chariots of Pharaoh and the horses and his hosts, his armies, his multitudes of army were before the village over against Bill Shirfan. And Pharaoh approached, and the children of Israel, having looked up, beheld, and the Egyptians encamped behind them, and they were very greatly terrified. And the children of Israel cried to Jesus and said to Moses, Because there were no graves in the land of Egypt, have you brought us forth to slay us in the desert? What is this? That you have done to us, having brought us out of Egypt. Is not this the word which we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it is better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert, it should say. And Moses said to the people, Be of good courage, courage, opposite of being afraid. Be of good courage, meaning uh, a good amount of courage, not just a little bit of courage, but have a lot of courage, a good courage. Be courageous, be bold, be brave. Stand and see the salvation. Stand is opposite of shrinking back. It is the opposite of hiding. It is the opposite of fear. Stand and see the salvation, which is from Jesus, which he will work for you this day. For as you have seen the Egyptians today, you shall see them again no more forever. Jesus shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And Jesus said to Moses, why cry you to me? Speak to the children of Israel and let them proceed. As for you. Lift up your rod and stretch forth your hand over the sea and divide it. And let the children of Israel enter into the midst of the sea on the dry land. And Moses stretched forth his hand and his staff, his rod, up into the air. He had to keep his hand, his staff, in the air all night long. Another verse tells us, that when his arm began to be weak, 
and lower a little bit. Aaron had to help hold his hand up to keep his hand up all night long. That when the hand came down, that some of the waters started to also fall down instead of being held up from the Israelites. So he had to keep his hand up in order for the water to stay up. Now, even though it was God performing this miracle, he was God was working in cooperation, in cooperation together with Moses and was given power to Moses. And God told Moses to divide the waters. God did not say, I'm going to divide the waters, although he did. But he told Moses, you go and divide the waters. God gave Moses power. And when Moses's arm got weak, the waters began to collapse a little bit on the Israelites. But the water would go back up perfectly to stand away from the Israelites and protect the Israelites whenever his arm went back up. So we got to understand that God uses mankind. And when we always pray uh, for God to do things and then we go back and do nothing, then we are not working together with God. We're not working in cooperation with God. Because, yes, we pray, but then we put action to our prayers and we go and do what needs to be done in the power of God, with the power of God, with the blessing of God. So verse 17, and lo, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh and all the Egyptians, and they shall go in after them, and I will be glorified upon Pharaoh and all of his hosts and all of his chariots and all of his horses. And all the Egyptians should know that I am Jesus when I am glorified upon Pharaoh and upon his chariots and upon his horses. Now, when he says that the Egyptians were no idol, remember that the Egyptians were serving, worshiping cats and snakes and planets and stars and uh, uh, flies and locusts and all kinds of animals and insects. They were worshiping every god imaginable, including birds and, and snakes. That's important to what I'm going to say later. So when he says they're going to know I'm Jesus, it's in opposition to what the Egyptians were already worshiping. And the Egyptians had learned of the name of Jesus through Moses. And they had never heard of Jesus before. And Jesus had not revealed his name of Jesus to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. But he revealed it to Moses. And then Moses revealed it to Pharaoh in the presence of the Egyptian people. And <clears throat> so <clears throat> we read that, remembering that, that they're going to know I'm Jesus. They're, they're not going to think that this is from Mars or Neptune, but they're going to know that the defeat of the Egyptian army is by the hand of the true God, the one true God with the name of Jesus. Verse 19, and the manifestation of Theos that went before the camp of the children of Israel. Now that word camp, it should be encampment. 
because of where I have repeatedly in all the other previous verses used the word encamp in verse two and in other verses I have used the word encamp repeatedly throughout this chapter. So when we come to verse 19, we need to stay with the translation instead of using a different word. So we need to change that word camp in verse 19 to the word encampment. And I would like to introduce to you a way of putting your notes to where you can read them better and where you don't have to scram it between where you don't have to cram the word in between the two lines. So what you could do is you could put a little symbol, like a little star or a little pound sign, a little number sign next to the word camp and next to the word camp. And then go to the bottom of the page and put your number, your number sign again in the margin, in the bottom, bottom margin of your page, put a little number sign or whatever symbol you used. Then put 14 verse 20 or 14 colon 20 and then write the words encampment slash army and that way what you're doing is you're putting a little star within the verse that you're making a note about or a correction about you put that little star next to the word camp each time that you see the word camp through the rest of the chapter that way you don't have to write the word encampment and army over and over and over. All you got to do is put a little star and then put the star at the bottom of the page and give the verse that it refers to 14 verse 20. Encampment slash army. And that way you don't have to squeeze uh, the long, big word of encampment in between the sentences. So that is a way that you can make notes and take advantage of the margins. All right. So then going back to verse 20 and it went, uh, let me go back to verse 19 is actually what you need to be referring to. You know, it's actually verse 19 and 20. So verse 19 says, and the manifestation of Theos, the manifestation of Theos, this was God appearing to the Egyptian army and to the Israelites, God himself, the manifestation of Theos that went before the encampment or the army of the children of Israel, removed and went behind, and the pillow of the cloud also removed from before them and stood behind them. Verse 20, and it went before the encampment or the army of the Egyptians, and the encampment or the army of Israel and stood and there was a darkness and a blackness and the night passed and they came not near to one another during the whole night. So God separated the Egyptians, the army of the Egyptians from the army of the Israelites. And these words camp actually being translated encampment or army identifies Israel as being an army. Now, even though they were not very well equipped as an army, not very well trained as an army, and these people had been in slavery and their 
400 years. So they were not very skilled or trained as an army, but they were the army of God. And God fought this battle for them as their leader. But we should not wrongfully think that God will always fight our battles without our help. In this case, the people were ordained to flee. That's what they were supposed to do in this particular case. In this particular case, they were not to fight back, but they were to flee. But you did have Moses taking action by lifting the staff up into the sky. And God was taking action to protect his people, to put a separation between the two armies, to actually stand in between the two armies. God did, Jesus did stand in between his people and their enemies. And it's an amazing thing that happened. In verse 21, Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and Jesus pulled back the sea with a strong south wind all the night and made the sea dry, and the water was divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the water of it was a wall on the right hand and a wall on the left. And the Egyptians pursued them and went in after them, the Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, midst of the sea. And it came to pass in the morning watch that Jesus looked forth on the camp or encampment. So you can put a little star there that it should say encampment, army of the Egyptians through the pillow of the fire and cloud and troubled the little star encampment army of the Egyptians and bound the axis of their chariots and caused them to go with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for Jesus fights for them against the Egyptians. Verse 26. And Jesus said to Moses, stretch forth thine hand and thine is spelt wrong there, but you need to just cross out that and put the word your your hand stretch forth your hand over the sea and let the water be turned back to its place and let the water and let it cover the Egyptians coming both upon the chariots and the riders and Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea and the water returned to its place toward daybreak and the Egyptians fled from the water and G and Jesus shook off the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the water returned and covered the and all the forces of Pharaoh who entered after them into the sea, and there was not even one left of them. But the children of Israel went along to the sea, and the water was to them a wall on the right hand and a wall on the left. So Jesus delivered Israel in that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead by the shore of the sea. And Israel saw the mighty hand the things which Jesus did to the Egyptians and the people feared Jesus and they believed Theos and Moses, his servant. Now, what I'd like to introduce to you today also 
is that what is written in the Bible is not the only things that we know about Jesus. There was, I mean, Moses and Jesus. You know, there are things that are written in other places, not just the Bible, that tells us of the historical events and what happened even before this. What was Moses's life like before the Exodus and before he even went out into the wilderness, out into the desert, before he left Egypt to find his wife and his and his uh, stepfather and so forth? The writings of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived very shortly after the time frame of Jesus. And Josephus was the historian of the first century. He wrote down many events that occurred during his lifetime as well as before his lifetime that was still known in the records, that was still known to the people in, in school and in archaeology and in books and, and, and scriptures and different things that still existed at the time of the first century. And Josephus wrote about what had happened to Moses before this and that Moses had been a great general of the, of the military of Egypt. So I'm going to read to you a little bit from Josephus. And he had different books that he wrote, which now are all combined into one book. And this particular section of what we now have as one volume of a book is called The Jewish Antiquities by Josephus, the book of Jewish Antiquities, book number two, chapters 10 and 11. This is what Josephus says. Moses, therefore, when he was born, and brought up in a foregoing manner and came to the age of maturity, made his virtue manifest to the Egyptians and showed that he was born for the bringing them down and the raising the up of the Israelites. And the occasion he laid hold was of this, the Ethiopians, who are next neighbors to the Egyptians, made an inroad into their country which they seized upon and carried off the effects of the Egyptians, who in their rage fought against them and revenged the affronts they had received from them. But being overcome in battle, some of them were slain, and the rest ran away in a shameful manner, and by that means saved themselves. And whereupon the Ethiopians followed after them in the pursuit, and thinking that it would be a mark of Kindness, if they did not subdue all of Egypt. They went on to subdue the rest with greater vimerous, and when they had tasted the sweets of the country, they left, they never left off the persecution, prosecution of the war. And as the nearest parts had not courage enough at first to fight with them, they proceeded as far as Memphis, Egypt, and the sea itself while not one of the cities were able to oppose them. The Egyptians, under this sad oppression, betook to themselves to the oracles and prophecies, 
And when God had given them counsel to make use of Moses, the Hebrew, to and take his assistance, the king commanded his daughter to produce him, Moses, that he might be the general of the army. So what happened was, according to history that was known in the first century and that Josephus wrote about, is that during the time that Moses was in Egypt, before he fled from Egypt, before he went out into the desert for 40 years and then came back to Egypt to deliver the Israelites, when Moses was still a prince of Egypt, the nation of Egypt was in a war with Ethiopia and was getting defeated by the Ethiopians. And so they sought prophecies about what to do and what would occur. And they saw the scriptures, they saw books, they saw ministers, they saw people that knew about spiritual things and prophecies. And it was revealed to them, to the Egyptians, to the Egyptian Pharaoh, that Moses had been born to lead the Egyptians, to be a great military leader, and that they were to use Moses as a military leader to defeat Ethiopia. This was known in history and is still written for us today in the writings of Josephus. So they made Moses a general to fight against the Ethiopians. And it says here in this book that upon which when she, uh, when the Pharaoh's daughter had uh, brought forth Moses that she had him to swear to not do the Egyptian Pharaoh any harm. She delivered him to the king and supposed his assistance would be of great advantage to them. She withdrew, uh, <clears throat> she with her reproached the priests who, when they had before admonished the Egyptians to kill him, was not ashamed now to own their want of his health. So Moses, at the persuasion both of Thermilius and the king himself, cheerfully undertook the business, and the sacred scribes of both nations, the Hebrews and the Egyptians, were glad, those of the Egyptians, that they should at once overcome their enemies by their valor, his valor, and that by the same piece of management Moses would be slain. Because the Egyptians even though they knew the prophecies that Moses would defeat the Ethiopians and that Moses would be a general, a military leader, the Egyptians of his own family and of his own people of the Egyptians, they were also against Moses. I think there was some jealousy going on and some, uh, you know, how the other princes, like you see in Saudi Arabia, that you have a war between princes, and like you see throughout the empires of Babylon and Assyria and Egypt, how they fought one another and killed one another, and brother and sister killed one another in order to become the next king and the next queen. And so even though they knew Moses was prophesied to be a great general, they made him general not just to win the war, 
but also hoping that he would get killed and and that somebody else that they themselves would become the next general or the next king or the next pharaoh so they had alternative motives at the same time so i keep reading here that they were happy by the same piece of management that moses would be slain but those of the hebrews that they should escape from the egyptians because moses was to be their general so the hebrew people knew by the prophecies that Moses had been born to deliver them. And at the scene, you know, there was a lot of different things that the people knew back then. And Moses prevented the enemies and took and led his army before those enemies were appraised of his attacking them. So that he not he did not march by the river but by the land, where he gave a wonderful demonstration. Sagacity, wisdom, wisdom, Brittany says it means. For when the ground was difficult to be passed over because of the multitude of serpents, which it produces in vast numbers, and indeed is singular in some of those product productions, which other countries do not breed, and yet such as we are worse than others in power and mischief, an unusual fierceness of sight, some of which ascend out of the ground unseen and also fly in the air. There were serpents flying in the air. I'm going to tell you about that. I've already sent you a link about it. If you've not yet looked at that link, you can do so either now or after the services. But I sent uh, almost everybody a link about what these flying serpents actually were. And so Josephus writes that there were serpents that flew in the air. And it says Moses invented a wonderful uh, something to preserve the army safe and without hurt. For he made baskets like unto arks and filled them with these flying serpents called I-B-E-S. I-B-E-S. He filled these baskets with these flying serpents and carried them along with him each animal uh which animal is the greatest enemy to serpents imaginable so even though this animal was called a flying serpent it was also the greatest enemy of serpents it was actually a bird but they called it a flying serpent because if you look at the picture in the link that I sent you, the picture shows its beak, its head, its neck looking like a snake. I had to look at it for a while, but then I saw it very, very clearly. Yeah, that looks like a snake. If, if you was an Egyptian who worshipped snakes and animals uh, and, and not really knowing uh, a whole lot about the other stuff that just thinking of things in a mythological thing of thinking like they did that you would see it as a flying serpent and but that bird was also very well known for eating snakes and killing snakes at the same time so it says which animal is the greatest enemy to serpents imaginable for they fly from them when they come near them and as they fly they are called and devoured by them as if it were done by the harps. But the ibids, these flying birds, the ibids are tame creatures 
set for that they kill the snakes and only enemies to the serpent tile kind but about but about these ibids i say no more at present since the greeks themselves were not acquainted with this sort of bird right here it says that they are birds as soon therefore as moses had come to the land which was the breeder of these serpents he let loose the ibids and by their means repelled the serpentine kind and used them for his assistance before the army came upon that ground. When he had therefore proceeded thus on his journey, he came upon the Ethiopians before they expected him. And joining battle with them, he beat them and deprived them of the hopes that they had of success against the Egyptians and went on in overthrowing their cities and indeed made a great slaughter of these Ethiopians. Now, when the Egyptian army had once tasted of this prosperous success, by the means of Moses, they did not slacken their diligence, inasmuch that the Egyptians were in danger of being reduced to slavery and all sorts of destruction. And at length, they retired to a place called Sabah, which was a royal city of Ethiopia, which Cambas afterwards named uh, Mero after the name of his own sister. The place was to be besieged with very great difficulty since it was both in, 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 encompassed by the Nile, quite round, and the other rivers, Asapotus and Asaboras, made it very difficult thing for which, for such as attempted to pass over them, for the city was situate in a retired place and was inhabited after the manner being encompassed in incapacitated with a strong wall and having the rivers guard them from their enemies. I'm going to skip a lot here and go down to chapter. Now the Egyptians, after they had been preserved by Moses, entertained a hatred to him and were very eager in capacitating their designs against him as suspecting that he would take occasion for his, from his good success to raise a sedation within Egypt and bring invitations into Egypt. So they knew that even though that, that he was called to deliver, to deliver the Egyptians from the Egyptians, he was also called to bring Egypt down. They knew that. So they used him for the day and the time and the season to defeat the Ethiopians. But once that was done, they started to plot against him, knowing and suspecting and believing that he would actually eventually overthrow Egypt. And so they started to plot against him. And they told the king that he ought to be slain. The king also had some intentions to himself to the same purpose. And this as well out of envy at his glorious expectation at the head of as at the head of his army as out of fear of being brought low by him and being incited, uh, incit instigated by the sacred scribes. He was ready to overtake to kill Moses. So even the sacred scribes said it's time to kill Moses. We used him for the time in the season as the prophecy said, but he's now going to overthrow us, so we've got to kill him. 
So the king and all these people and the scribes started to plot to kill Moses. That's where the Bible picks back up and tells us about how that Moses killed one of the slave masters. Then Moses fled into the desert for 40 years before he eventually came back to Egypt. So when we think of Moses leaving Egypt after he killed the slave master, we must remember what history says to help us understand that better because it doesn't make sense unless you consider what was written in history because Moses was rich and powerful. He was in the government and the military. He was a high leader within the royal family. He was a high leader of Egypt. He would not have been killed just for killing one man because to kill a person in Egypt was nothing. It was nothing. It was not deserving under their own law to take the life of somebody that killed somebody because to the Egyptians to die was to gain. To die was to go into paradise immediately and you would still have all of your possessions. And that's why they they buried their treasure with them because as soon as they died, they 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 took everything with them into the afterlife and it was seen as a glorious thing to die. And it was not really a big deal to kill someone at that time in Egypt. And especially if you was rich and powerful and part of the government. So it doesn't make sense for Moses to flee for his life just because he killed a a uh, a minor person. This person that he killed was only a slave master. So he, the person he killed was not a person in the high ranks, but he was in the high ranks. He could have gotten away with that very easy, except for the fact that the king himself and the scribes and the religious leaders and the people that knew the prophecies, they were already plotting against Moses. And that is the real reason that he left Egypt is because he knew that there was plots against him. And that with this killing of this one man, even though if it had happened under any other context, if they had not been plotting the demise of Moses, there would not have been a problem with that. It would not even be brought up. Nobody would say a word to Moses about it. But because of the dramatic dramatics of them already plotting against him, they could use that and would use that to, to try to stir up trouble. So you have to understand the context of the mentality of what's going on in the background. And the book of Hebrews says that Moses did not flee out of fear, but rather by choice and by faith and by faithfulness to Jesus that he was going to lead Israel. That's what the New Testament said that he left Egypt for. Not fear that he would be killed, not fear of the king, not fear of the people, 
by choice that he was going to follow God and lead the Israelites. And because he knew the prophecies that he would defeat Ethiopia, then defeat Egypt and lead the Israelites. The Hebrews knew this. The Egyptians knew this. Moses knew this. So when he killed the slave master, he realized it was time for him to go away for 40 years and eventually come back. He knew right then that moment when he left Egypt that he would come back. He didn't know how. He didn't know when. But he knew eventually he would come back to somehow overturn Egypt and lead his people Israel. And he left, according to the New Testament, according to the book of Hebrews, he left in the mind frame of a leader who had chosen to leave Egypt with this background and with this knowledge. Now, I gave you the link to the birds article, which shows a picture, a couple of pictures. And one of those pictures in that link is uh, an Egyptian engraving on a tomb of an Egyptian showing that bird. That bird was worshipped as all the animals were in Egypt. All the animals were worshipped. And that bird was said to be a manifestation of Thor, T-H-O-R, which is the same god that dressed in a uh, red suit came down a chimney and had a flying reindeer. Thor is Santa Claus. And this bird, this bird represents uh, Thor being reincarnated in the, in the image or in the of a bird according to the Egyptians. Um, and the Egyptians said it was a flying serpent. And so that article there gives you some insight into that. Now, notice that the Egyptian carving has a reference to it. And the reference is from the Orthodontal Institute. That's very interesting. Notice how God is confirming these things. Remember from the sermon that Jesus is our manna, that I quoted from the biblical archaeological article about the manna in Saudi Arabia. And the reference was to the American schools of Oriental research. Then in the article about the city of Babylon in Saudi Arabia, the article about Russia and China building, helping Saudi Arabia to build that town, that there was a reference to the actual link, the actual link that I added onto the article about Russia and China is from the ortorentalreview.org. So there's that word ortorental again. Now, today, in this uh, uh, writings of Josephus in the Jewish Antiquities, referring to Moses being prophesied to be a great general overthrowing Egypt and then leading the Hebrews. This refers to the flying serpent bird 
engraved on that Egyptian tomb in that article with the reference to the Orturental Institute. Again, the word Orturental. So it's amazing how God continues to use the word Orturental three times in a row to confirm the truth, the end time revelation. The manna in the wilderness was revealed to us what it really is, that it still exists to this day through the Orturental research, the Russia and China building Babylon, the Orturental review, and about the flying serpent that Moses used against the Ethiopians as engraved in the Egyptian tomb as uh, connected by reference to the Orturental Institute. This is one of the ways that you know that God is real and that God is confirming what he is saying, what he's revealing to his people. God wants us to start realizing that Moses was a leader of an army and that the children of Israel was also an army. And because the Old Testament children of Israel was also a congregation, a foreshadowing, a symbolism of the modern day called out ones congregation church. The congregation of Israel, we are now the congregation of Israel. The Old Testament children of Israel was a foreshadowing of our, our end time New Testament church or New Covenant church rather. So we also are army. And the children of Israel not only was a congregation, but they was an army. And since they are a foreshadowing of us and we are the fulfillment of them, they were pointing to us that we are now the army and the congregation. A lot of people don't see a church as being an army. That's one thing that the Salvation Army does have right. The Salvation Army is both a church and an army. And their preachers, their pastors, are actually given military rank. They are both an army and a church. And you can look at any of the false churches and see, find something right in them among all their lies, among exceptions, among all of their false doctrines. There's always a little bit of truth and all in everything because the devil always mixes some truth in with all the lies. But the Salvation Army at least has that right, that your pastor is a leader of an army and that you are not only a church member, but an army member. Amen. Now, I'd like now to go on to another veteran of the Bible. We talked about Moses. We talked about God being the leader of an army. We alluded a little bit to us being part of the army. And therefore, we are all military members in the kingdom of God. But now let's look at the next veteran of the Bible named Joshua. Let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 20. And in the black and white copy is page 130. 
Deuteronomy 20, page 130 of the paperback, verse 1. And if you should go forth to war against your enemies and see horse and rider and a people more than yourself, you should not be afraid of them. For Jesus, your Theos, is with you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And it should come to pass, whenever you should draw near to battle, that the priests should draw near and speak to the people and should say to them, Hear, O Israel, you're going this day to battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Fear not. Neither be confounded, confused. Neither let, neither turn aside from their faith. Don't be afraid. Don't shrink back. For it is Jesus, your Theos, who advances with you to fight with you against your enemies and to save you. When we go into battle, it should be a church event. The pastors should be the generals. Moses was both a general and a prophet. He was a pastor. He was a church leader, a congregation leader, and military at the same time. Our government leaders should be our church leaders. Our church leaders should be our government leaders. We should have no separation of church and state. No, we shouldn't. We should have no, no separation of church and state. Church and state should be exactly the same people, exactly the same laws, exactly the same government, the same structure, everything. If you look at the government of God, it is very military. It is theocracy, not democracy. And the priests, the pastors, should be in the front of the battle, leading the people, speaking forth the name of Jesus, just like David spoke forth the name of Jesus against Goliath and said, we come in the name of the Lord. We defeat you in the name of Jesus. Fighting the battles in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we should not be fearful if we are leaving, living for Jesus. And if we are a nation under God, if we are a nation of his laws and his ways, then we should not be fearing our enemies. We should not fear Iran. We should not fear the Assyrian, the Bible says. We should not fear Russia and China. But the government leaders and the South Korean Australian leaders, they are filled with fear. They are fearful of Russia. Iran, China, and North Korea, because they're not keeping their eyes on Jesus, because they're not allowing Jesus to be the captain of their army. They are trying to separate church and state. They're trying to pull back the pastors from leading the troops. Now you can't even have a Bible verse in the military or on the wall in the military. But according to the Bible, 
the pastors are supposed to speak up and lead the people into battle. Many years ago, God gave me this, uh, this drummer's key that I have tied to a string around my, de- my neck right now. Many of you have already heard this testimony, but I must share it again right now because this is so relevant. That the pastors should be the leaders of war and the leaders of the military. And that the church needs to be more military thinking instead of shrinking back. Is that many years ago when I was very young in the Lord, just a baby in Christ, and still wondering, does God really speak to people in their hearts and in their minds? I was hearing all these people. I was in Babylon at the time, sort of. I was going to a Babylon church, Pentecostal church, but God was there. He really was. And God was teaching me through those people. For that time and that season, that is what I needed for that time and season. And I was wondering, does God really speak to people in their mind, in their heart? Or are these people just imagining it? And so one day at services, we was all gathered together in this little room that we had as a storefront church like we have here, except that was smaller. And we were all gathered together <clears throat> near the pulpit. We're all praying. And after we got done praying, we all stood there around the pulpit as the pastor's wife gave this testimony that years ago before that, she had been sitting down. She was set down inside of a church building. Her eyes were closed and she felt something drop into her lap. She opened her eyes and it was a index card box. All these index cards in this box with people's names written on it, people who they've been praying over for a long time. And she said, God, what does this mean? And God spoke to her in her mind and her heart said something like, these are your people. Now they're mine or these are people and they're yours. And she looked, and the only person that could have put that box in her lap was this little kid, maybe about five years old. I'm not sure what she said, five, six years old, something like that. This little boy had took it from the front of the church, brought it to her, dropped it in her lap, just left it there in her lap. And God spoke to her through that. And she finished that testimony. We all went back to our seats. And when I got back to my seat, this boat kind of looks like a screw in a way as a boat was laying in my lap. It was laying in my seat when I got back to my seat. And I looked around and the only person that could there was this little kid, maybe about five years old or so. This little boy, just like in her testimony. And I knew that it was a miracle and that the reason that it was put there was just like in her testimony that God used a child to bring it to me in my lap, in my chair. And I said, God, what does this mean? 
he did speak to me. In my mind, in my heart, I felt the presence of his voice. I didn't hear nothing out loud, but I knew that he was saying to me these words. I'm going to fasten you that you would never leave me again. And I will bring together the pieces of the puzzle. Amen. And from that day forth to this very day, I have no doubts. I know that God speaks to his people. And I've tied that boat around a string and I've carried it with me ever since all these years. Not for sure what year that was, maybe 2007, 2006. And years passed. Someone finally told me what it was because I didn't know what the boat. Eventually, somebody told me that it is a drummer's key where they tune the drums and that you have several around a drum. And they have several that goes all the way around. the, And you would turn one key and then another and then another to adjust the drum to tune the drum. And a person after that, years after that, then told when I told them about that and what it was, he said, yeah, I recognize it. That's what it is. And he said that what he thought it meant was that God was fine tuning me a little at a time, a little here and a little there. Because that's why the way you use it is you would turn one key and then another and then another, a little here and a little there. That that was what God was doing to me, fine tuning. Well, some more time passed. Then I found out uh, more about how to use it, what it is and what it means to me and what God was saying to me. And God's been bringing the puzzle and he brings a little bit at a time because we can't handle it all at one time. If he was to tell us everything, reveal everything to us and help us understand everything all in one day, we wouldn't be able to handle it. We have to learn a little bit at a time over the years. So I learned a little bit and then years passed and I learned a little bit more and years passed and I learned what this means. And so the latest of what I learned here a while back was that the drummer, the person that played the drum, is the leader in the war, in the battle. That the drum major would be the, the person standing in front of the entire military unit playing the drums as they go into battle, especially like in the Civil War and the Revolution. But even to this day, in some military units, the drummer is the leader of the unit of the battalion and the drummer can make certain sounds with the drum that tells the military unit the battalion to shoot or to not shoot to hold their fire or to go ahead and shoot or to move to the left or to move to the right the sounds of the drum can give the instructions of war the Native American Indians used to be the drum for war and for church and for religion and for spiritual purposes. And as talking, the Indians could play a drum 
and people a mile away, two miles away, even five miles away could hear that drum and understand what it means. And they could talk to one another through the drums back and forth like a uh, Morris code. And they have actually done this in war as well, that the sound of a drum could be here for heard for a long, long distance. And they would use it like a Mo uh, Morris code to relay messages between different units or between a man out in the field and giving messages back and forth with the drum. So what I learned was that the drum is the instrument of, of, of music and instruction of the leader of the military. And it's amazing. Let's go to Joshua chapter one. That's page 139. Joshua chapter one, page 139. And it came to pass after the death of Moses that Moses, that Jesus spoke to Joshua, to Jehoshia, which is Joshua, the son of Nun, the minister of Moses, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, arise and go over Jordan, the Jordan River, you and all this people into the land which I will give them. Every spot on which you shall tread, I will give to you, as I said to Moses. Now that word tread is a military term. It is more than just walking. It is land. It is actually uh, marching. It is a, a military term of, of walking on a land. Verse 4, the wilderness or the desert and the Antibatias, as far as the great river, the river of Pretes, and as far as the extremity of the sea, your coasts shall be from the setting of the sun. Not a man shall stand against you all the days, meaning they're not going to have victory against you. As I was with Moses, so I also will be with you, and I will not fail you or neglect you. Verse 6, be strong and quiet yourself like a man, for you shall divide the land to this people, which I swore to give to your fathers. Now that expression, quiet yourself like a man, i like for you to put that in quotation marks or or apricies, uh, propensities, I can't pronounce that word. Can't hear you, Brittany. Parentheses. Quiet yourself like a man. Put that in apricies or quotation marks. It's actually one word. One word. Let's see, we got one, two, three, four, five. But it's actually one word in Greek. But it's impossible or almost impossible to translate it with only one English. But if we were to use only one word in English, it would be the word, actually, it would take two words, be manly, be manly. So I would like for you to write above it, be manly slash brave. 
to quiet yourself like a man, what God was telling Joshua is don't be crying, don't be fearful, don't be a wimp, don't uh, be a coward, but be a man, be manly and be bold and be brave. So to use the translation of quiet yourself like a man is actually correct, but we also need to explain it. That is it's saying, be a man, be manly, be brave, be bold, and thus you're, you're at peace. You're not fearful. You're quieting your as a man because you're acting like a man rather than a scared child. <clears throat> so be strong then and be manly or brave. Or quiet yourself like a man. Either translation works. For you should divide the land to this people give to your fathers. Verse 7, be strong, therefore, and quiet yourself like a man or be man. To observe, to do as Moses, my servant, commanded you. For you should not turn, therefore, to the right hand or to the left, so that you may be wise in whatever you may do. And the book of this law should not depart out of your mind. And you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may know how to do all the things that are written in it. Then shall you prosper and make your ways prosperous, and then shall you be wise. <clears throat> what God is saying, and the reason I <clears throat> read these verses, is because we got to think of ourselves more often as an army and not be so fearful of the serpents, of the birds, of the snakes of the spiders, of the enemy, of the invasion, of the great tribulation. But we all need to become mature and quiet ourselves, quiet our souls, quiet our hearts, quiet our nervousness. Trust in the Lord that what is ordained to happen will happen. God is in control. He, he told Daniel, or Daniel said that he controls the kingdoms and who will be the king and what kingdom would come after that and who wins the battles, and who wins the wars. God is in control. Look unto Jesus as the captain, captain of the army, of the military, the leader of the armies. Now, God called Joshua as a military man. Look at chapter five. Next page here, chapter 5, verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua, when Jehoshia said in, was in Jericho, that he looked up with his eyes and saw uh, a man, what looked like a man, standing before him. And there was a, draw, a drawn sword in his hand. This is Jesus standing with a sword. And Je Jehoshia drew near and said to him, not Yeshia, drew near to him, are you for us or on the side of our enemies? And he heard, he said to him, I am now come. I am the chief cat 
captain of the host of Jesus, the host of the Lord, the host of Jesus. I'm the captain of the army of Jesus. Well, if it's the army of Jesus and he is the captain, then he is Jesus. Verse 15, and Jehoshia fell on his face upon the earth and said to him, Lord, what command you, your servant? And the captain of Jesus' host said to loose the shoe off your feet, for the place wherein you now stand is holy. That's the same words that Jesus spoke to Moses at the burning bush on the Mount Sinai in northern Saudi Arabia. Take the shoes off your feet. Because the land, the ground you stand on is holy. God is actually there. Jesus is actually there speaking to Moses. Take the shoes off your feet. Say the same thing to Jehoshaphat. And this is Jesus with a sword in his hand. And he's, he looks like a man. He doesn't describe him as a burning or as a fire here, but he's appearing to Jehoshaphat in the appearance of looking like a man, King Mekhaziah. And this, he looked like a man with a sword in his hands, with his drawn, with his sword actually drawn. The sword is not on the side of his hip, but the door, the sword is actually, actually drawn. This pictures Jesus as being the captain, captain, the leader, the general of the military and of the army. So many people today are being taught by the Internet that we are to be what they call conscientious objectors, that we should not fight in war, that if you're a Christian, if you're a true follower, are never allowed to kill anybody for any reason, not for self-defense, not for the defense of your family, not in war, not in battle, not for any reason, not for capital punishment, not for anything. That is a false doctrine of the devil that has been taught to a lot of people on the Internet. And it's very sad that people are being taught this because they are not being taught to be an army. They are taught to fear and they're being taught to shrink back. And it's completely wrong doctrine. Jesus has his sword drawn. And when we read Revelation 19, see Jesus, that his words out of his mouth is like a sword. And that we are coming back as his army to slay people. As I told somebody on the phone just a few days ago, if you don't want to kill anybody, ever, 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 for any, any, any reason that you're not going to heaven. There's a difference between kill and murder. Murder is a sin all the time. But kill, you can kill a mosquito. That's not a sin. That's not murder. You can kill in the battle of war. That's not murder. You can have capital punishment as the Bible says that we are to do. That's not murder. There's the difference between murder and kill. But people will say, and it was told to me a few. But Jesus said, 
that we are to love our enemies and not curse them. Well, yes, he said that. But you have to read the whole Bible. You can't take that one verse and make the doctrine out of it and completely ignore the fact that the two witnesses, that if any man shall hurt them, that they're going to be killed. According to what the Bible says in Revelation, that the word of God, it says the fire out of their mouth, that's the word of God, will slay those people. And if any man shall try to hurt the two witnesses, the word of God coming out of their mouth will literally, will literally kill their enemies, not bless their enemies, but kill their enemies by the word of God out of their mouth, not by a sword, not by gun, not by bomb, but by the word of God coming out of their mouth. And when we come back with Jesus, we too also, as members of the army, as members of the military of God, we will kill the Muslims, the communists, the Nazis, the 666 people, Russians, Chinese, Iranians, Syrians. This is very clear in Scripture. I'm not trying to lead anybody to lift up arms. I'm not trying to do that. But I'm trying to teach correct doctrine. There is a time to kill. The Bible says there is time to kill and a time to love and a time to hate and a time to embrace and all these different things. Everything under the sun, time to do everything under the sun. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. That if you allow somebody to come into your home and murder your children or your wife, and you say that Jesus said to love everybody and to not, and to bless, and somebody comes in there to murder or rape your family, your wife, and your children, and you're going to just sit and watch it and bless them and love them and bless them, then you are a card. And I don't even want you as a member of this does God because you're not worthy of the kingdom. Be a man and take care of your family and your children. If somebody breaks into your home, blow their brains out. Somebody breaks into your home and endangers your family, blow their brains out. And God will bless you. And yes, not only men, but women, defend yourself and defend your household and your family. But if you're the man of the house, it is up to you. These false, false doctrines just really get to me because they get to God and they're corrupting the army. And an army that is refuses to fight it's not an army. They're cards. An army that refuses to fight is not an army, but cards. Amen. Now, let's look at 
we know what happened next with Joshua, Jehoshia. But let's read it because this is important. In chapter, uh, well, maybe it's a different book, maybe Numbers. Yeah, let's go to the book of Numbers. That's where it's at. Numbers 13. So that's over to the left. Numbers 13, verse 1, page 102. Numbers 13, verse 1, page 102. And afterwards, the people set forth from Astor and encamped in the wilderness of Paran, and Jesus spoke to Moses, saying, Send for you men, and let them spy the land of the Canaanites, which I give to the sons of Israel for possession, one man for a tribe, that you shall send them forth according to their families, every one of them a leader. Okay, so then go down to verse 28. Verse 28, Numbers 13, verse 28, and they reported to each one of these leaders reported to him and said that we came into the land, <clears throat> the land of Canaan, into which you sent a land of milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. But the nation which dwells upon it is bold. Now notice, God told Israel to be bold. God told Joshua to be bold. God told Moses to be bold. God tells us to be but these people go and spies into the land of Canaan to check it out. And they come back and say that their enemies are bold rather than saying we are bold. They are bold and they have a very great and strong walled top, uh, towns. And we saw there the children of Enoch and Amalek dwells in the land toward the and the Chittite and the Hittite and the Jebusite and the Amorite dwells, dwells in the hill country. And the Canaanite dwells by the sea and by the river Jordan. And Caleb stayed the people from speaking before Moses or stopped the people from speaking against Moses and said to him, no, but we will go up. We will go up. Caleb stood his ground boldly as a man. Stood his ground, stood up for God, acted like a military leader, acted like army, acted like somebody that trusted the Lord, and said, No, but we will go up by all means, and we will inherit it, for we shall surely prevail against them. But the men that went up together with him said, For we will no by no means be able to go up against the nation, for it is too much stronger than we are. And they brought a bad report of that land, which they surveyed upon the children of Israel, saying the land which we passed by to survey it is a land that eats up its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of extraordinary statue. And there we saw the giants, the Nephilim, and we were before them as locusts. Yes, even so are we to them. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and wept all that night. Fearful, crying about it, rather than believing in the Lord, rather than believing in Jesus, 
they cried out of fear and misery, thinking they were going to enter the promised land because too fearful to fight. Verse 2, And the children of Israel mumbled against Moses and Aaron and him, Would we that have, we would have died in the land or in the wilderness, in the desert? Would we that we would have died and have, why does Jesus bring us into the land of fallen war? Our wives and our children shall be for prey. Now then, it is better to return into Egypt. And they said to one another, let us make a ruler and return into Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their face before the congregation of the children of Israel. But Jehoshaphat, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of uh, Jephron, of the number of them that spied out the land, they tore their garments and spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we surveyed, it is indeed extremely good. Verse 8, If Jesus choose us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against Jesus, and fear you not the people of the land, for they are meat for us, for the season of prosperity is departed from them. But Jesus is among us. Fear them not. It says, rebel not against Jesus. Rebellion. Rebel not against Jesus. We are to be bold. We are to be brave in this time of war. Trust in Jesus that we will defeat the enemies and that we will take the land of Israel back. On the day of Jesus' return, as we come back as his army to defeat the Muslims and the communists and the Nazis, we're going to have victory that day. And there will be people. God will raise up a literal flesh and blood army. God will. God will. Jesus literally raise up people to literally fight with flesh and blood, with guns, with missiles, with airplanes in those final days of the Great Tribulation. And God will give us victory. He's going to turn the war around. When you see the nations invaded, think about the future. Think about the prophecies, even as the Egyptians did, even as Moses did. That yes, you might be leaving for a while, even as Moses fled into the wilderness for 40 years, then came back to Egypt. We're going to flee into the wilderness, some of us, for three and a half years, but we're coming back. We're coming back to take the promised land. We're coming back to seize the land promised to us. We're coming back. God. Is going to turn the war around. Amen. The battle. Some battles are won. Some battles are lost. But think about the end of the war. Amen. Let's not forget Deborah. Let's turn to Judges 4. Judges chapter 4. Page 155. 
we've spoken of Moses and Aaron and John. And we also know about Samson and David. They were veterans. They were. But let's consider a woman veteran here, Deborah, in Judges chapter 4. Yes, Michael, you changed prince to leaders in Numbers 13, verse 3. Page 155, Judges 4, verse 1. And the children of Israel continued to do Jesus. And this man named AOD, he was dead. And Jesus sold the children of Israel into the hand of Jabal, Jabin, the king of Canaan, who ruled in Ashur, and the chief of his host was Sishra, and he dwelt in Ashesoth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried to 900 chariots of iron, and he mightily oppressed Israel for 20 years. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. Now, the context of the book of Judges is that Israel fell away, away from God. They entered the promised land of Canaan, the, the land of milk and honey. And Moses was dead by then, and, and Joshua had become the, the new main leader under Jesus Christ. And they saw some military battles and wars won. But they still fell away from Jesus, and the people became more and more rebellious, more and more wicked, more, more and more sinful. So that by the time we get to chapter 4 here, there was no longer the voice of God, hardly, even upon the world, upon the generations and societies. The people had fallen so much away that it says that Jesus gave them over, sold them to, to the king of Canaan. Now, Jesus had told them that you're not going to worry about the kings of Canaan, the people in the armies of Canaan. Don't worry about them. I will defeat them for you. But the people didn't trust Jesus. They didn't look to Jesus as their leader. They didn't look to Jesus as being capable of delivering them. They lost faith in Jesus, and they went after other gods, and they served gods and the Assyrian gods and the Egyptian gods. And so God gave them over to that and handed them over to the Canaanites, and the Canaanites started winning the battles in, as judgment and as a curse. And there was really, it became that there was nobody really standing up for Jesus anymore. And Jesus wasn't even calling uh, spiritual leaders anymore. And that became the period of the judges. And the judges uh, were not even kings and they were not priests and they were not spiritual leaders very much at all. It was pretty much as just a human leader, just a president, just a prime minister. 
but called by God to lead the people for that time in that season. But there was a famine of the word of God and there was a famine of spiritual leadership during the time of the judges until you come to Samuel. So that is the context. So then God brought this woman, Deborah, to be the next judge, to be the judge, to be the prime minister of Israel, but not really a king, not really a king because Saul was the first human king. So there was not a lot of authority. There was not a lot of ruler rulership, not a lot of leadership. Even though God called Deborah as a leader, as a judge, she wasn't real powerful because Saul was the first king. There was a famine of leadership and of spiritual leadership and even of political leadership, even under Deborah. She was a minor leader. She was like a leader of like just small groups of men not of the entire nation of Israel because the nation of Israel was broke and defeated and conquered. So she was like just a rebel, uh, a leader of a rebel group uh, in the wilderness of Canaan. Now she is called a prophetess, which means she was called by God and she gave prophecy. But consider the context again. She was not really king or queen or high priest or priest or priestess or pastor. There was a famine of spiritual leadership, political leadership, military leadership. But she filled, she just filled in the gap for time and a season within a small band, a small band, a small group within Israel. Because Israel, in general, was conquered and defeated and scattered and so forth. So when people try to use Deborah as trying to say that women can be pastors, well, that's true, but only when there is a famine of spiritual leadership, only when there is a famine of men. Only when the people are scattered and there's no man to teach the people, then God can raise a woman in position of pastor, even though that's not God's will. It is not God's will. If you read the Bible, read the whole Bible. God called the men over and over. The men are supposed to be the leaders of society, of business, of the family, of the church, of everything. Men are supposed to be the leaders of everything, everything. But when there is a famine of men not willing to do the work, not willing to be the leaders, but they're wimps and immature and childish, then yes, God called Deborah and has called some women preachers. But that doesn't mean that you should allow a women preacher in every church. It's only the exception, not the rule. Yes, uh, Kiki, that even during the Great Tribulation, that God might call certain women to be leaders of churches and congregations. And to, because like I've said before, 
if there's nobody around to baptize anybody and the woman is the only person that knows the truth about Jesus' name and the scriptures and the seventh day and the commandments, it would be better for a woman to baptize a man than for there to be nobody to baptize anyone. And then hopefully one of those men will eventually step up to the plate and, and become a leader. It is God's will, his perfect will for men to be the leaders, but it's his, it is also his permissive will that some women would be called to fill the gap when needed. So when people use Deborah to try to say that every church can have a woman pastor, you need to point out that Deborah was not king of Israel. She was not queen of Israel. And she was not, uh, it was not in the context big congregation or anything like that. But what I would like to point out in honor of her, look at what happened in verse uh, six. And Deborah sent and called Barak, the son of Ambedin, out of the cage, out of cage Katidion, which is a place. It's not a cave. It's a place called Cades Nephitalia. And she said to him, has not Jesus Theos of Israel commanded you? And you shall depart to the Mount of Thobar and shall take with yourself 10,000 men Nephetiah of the sons of Zebulon. And I will bring you to the torrent of Kishal Sertia, the captain of the host of Jabin, and his chariots and his multitudes, and I will deliver them into your hands. And Barak said to her in verse 8, If you will go with me, if you will go with me, I will go. And if you will not go, then I will not go. For I know not the day on which Jesus prospers his messenger with me. So this man didn't want to go unless, unless she went as the voice of the Lord and as the Lord. And so <clears throat> that man didn't want to become leader. That man, that man did not want to take a step up to the plate. And when men are not willing to step up to the plate, then he can use anybody. But that's not his will. His will is that the man step up to the plate, be willing to be leader so that there won't be a famine in the land, so that there will be pastors, so that there will be bishops, so that there will be deacons, so that there will be male leaders and strong and bold. Amen. So we honor Deborah on this Veterans Day here in the United States. We honor Deborah. We honor Samson and David and Jehoshaphat and Moses and Jesus Christ. Amen. These are all military leaders. And we honor Michael, our brother, a Marine, my favorite military a uh, branch is the Marines. I've never been in the military myself, but I do honor the military and especially the Marines as my favorite branch. And I know that our sister Lisa has uh, some relatives in the Marine. And Michael is a Marine. 
He's leaving the Marines for Jesus so that he can keep the seventh day and all the holy days. And that's very admirable, very admirable that he is leaving the Marines for Jesus so that he can serve Jesus and obey Jesus. And that's the right thing to do. So we respect and we honor Michael as a veteran, as a military member, and as a man of God who is choosing to be part of the army of God over and above the armies of the world. Amen. So we honor Michael on this Veterans Day. We also honor uh, Brittany's stepdad that passed away recently. He was in the Korean War. I am uh, his my stepfather and his wife were in the Navy. My brother was in the Army. So she's saying that throughout her family, there's a lot, a lot of military in her family. So her stepdad that just recently passed was in the Korean War. He was a medic. And he I, I, I heard that he had told a lot of stories about when he was in the Korean War, that a lot of people would talk about the um, the TV show called MASH, how those medic units would would uh that the helicopters if you remember what that the helicopters would bring in the wounded soldiers both the korean and the american soldiers come into the uh the encampment where the doctors and nurses were to operate all these men that had been blown up and shot and everything but he was actually the people that brought the injured people to the encampment. So on MASH, you saw the doctors and nurses were already stationed waiting for the helicopters. But Brittany's stepdad was one of the medics that would have been on the front line, actually in the battlefield, actually taking care of the wounded right there on the ground, put them on the helicopter and take them to the MASH unit. So we honor him on this day. What was his name? Frank Harris. Frank Harris. I would also now like to take a time to play a song for you. Hopefully that you can hear it well, and hopefully this is still pulled up or that I can pull it up really quickly. And I'd like to read one more chapter in the Bible after this, in case you'd like to go ahead and be turning there while I pull up this song. And that would be Revelation 19, and then we'll close. I know that a lot of you have stayed up all night or got up really early, and we had all the trouble with the microphone, with talk shoe and everything. So I thank you for your endurance and uh, for uh, – for hanging out there with us, for waiting for me to uh, uh, find a way of getting this sermon going today. Let me pull this up while you turn to Revelation 19. This is 
Queen's hymn in honor of our brother Michael. The Halls of Montezuma. Well, I know that song was breaking up, um, so I apologize that it's uh, breaking up a lot, but I know that uh, um, some of you was able to hear parts of it, and I know that uh, Michael said that he was able to hear parts of it, So, uh, but I do play it in honor of Michael and all of the Marines. Um, <clears throat> let's turn to Revelation 19 now. One of these days, we're going to perfect the mind on Discord. And that's one of the reasons we cannot use uh, Discord to have services every week on Discord. It's just impossible. We cannot even consider it because the microphone does break up too much on Discord. And a lot of times it takes me 15 minutes, 30 minutes to figure out the microphone. Every time we get on the chat room, every time I have to play with the microphone, talks you, even though it's messing up today, is usually very reliable. Plus, on talks you, uh, it records it immediately and is available to listen to actually on the website at the same time without me inviting anybody. Whereas Discord, I would have to invite people and I would have to work with them and train every person about how to use it. And then they have to figure out how to use, how to get into the, get into the text room. It's just too much trouble to use Discord. TalkShoe is much more reliable for actual services where anybody that wants to can listen. They can listen on the Apple iTunes. They can listen on the website app for certain, certain computers. You know, there's, and they can listen over the phone. They can listen a million ways on TalkShoe, whereas on Discord, there's only one way that they can listen, and even then it's not dependable. So anyway, um, 
Let's read Revelation 19. Let's go down to verse 11, Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. This is Jesus. His eyes a flame of fire, and on his head many crowns. And he has a name written, which no one knows except himself, in addition to the name Jesus. But that other name is impossible to figure out. Don't any language on any website. Don't fast for it. Don't pray for it. It's a name that no one knows. And if it's a name that no one knows, then no one knows it. I mean, that's simple. That's no one knows it. No one, not that group, not that preacher, not that website, not Pastor Tim. No one knows that other name. But we know the name of Jesus. And the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, says that his name is Jesus. And that is the only name by which man may be saved. So we don't even know the other name, don't need to know that. Because only the name of Jesus. Can we be saved by? So then in verse 13, clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his title is called the word of the Theos. And the armies, we are armies, we are military, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white clean, were following him on the white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of the Theos, the Almighty. That means when he comes back, as another verse says, that the blood will be up to the bridle of the horses. When Jesus comes back, is not to shake hands. When Jesus comes back onto this earth, it's going to be at the battle of Armageddon, which will be a very bloody battle. And we're going to be fighting in that battle. There is a war going on, and it's not just symbolic. This is literal. This is literal. If we're going to be able to endure the time of greatest tribulation, if we're going to be able to endure that time, we need to realize the reality of war. We need to realize that we cannot have peace on this earth until we conquer the enemy. And we need to stop being fearful of the enemy and fight this war. Now, even though our last battle will be bloody, we will win it. And the victory is prophesied. We are going to win that last battle, and we're going to win this entire war. 
And I think that the battles that we need to be fighting right now is signing the petitions, writing, writing the politicians, writing friends and family, distributing flyers, putting bumper stickers on our cars and not being afraid to put a bumper sticker on our car. Not worried about the stupid paint on our car. People are so vain and so worried about paint on their car. If you're so worried about paint on your car that you won't even put a bumper sticker on your car because of the paint, you're not worthy of the kingdom because you care more about a stupid and stupid paint than you do about the word of God. Because if you really cared about the word of God, you would put a bumper sticker on your stupid car so that you can put the word of God all over the street. Every time you stop at a red light, the person behind you can see I saw the light ministries.com. But no, too worried about the paint on the car. People are too vain. Vanity is ridiculous. It's a great way, these bumper stickers, or a great way of introducing the website and the truth of Scripture and truth of salvation, the truth about Christmas and Easter, and even warning them about the strong delusion in the sky, a worldwide event that's coming soon. Why worry about paint of a car that you're going to have to park? You're going to have to park that car soon. You're not going to be able to put gas in it. You're not going to be able to drive it nowhere. It's going to sit and rust. You're going to have to abandon your cars pretty soon now. And I will be glad when the people have to abandon their cars and no longer. I'll be glad of it because every time I get in a car, I become enraged with anger because of the people tailgating me and the people speeding, the people passing me and then turn right in front of me after they just passed me. And the people that almost run into me and the people that do this and do that, people are in, in, in crazy. And I tell you, I cannot wait until their cars are taken away from them. It'll be a glorious day when no American will be able to drive a car again will be a day that I will be singing and dancing. The people don't deserve the cars that they have because they treat it like a game and they don't respect the people on the road. They don't respect their own life. They don't respect my life. They don't respect your life. They don't respect the lives of their own children or anybody else because they get into the car, they turn into and they don't care about anybody but themselves and they'll mow you down. And they don't even know how to drive. They don't even know to turn your headlights on when it's raining. Come on now. It's raining. Turn your lights on. Do you really need to read an instruction book? People are crazy. So that's a little bit of my rant about people. But we have a battle that is coming. And the cards will be separated. Amen. The Bible says there'll be no card in the kingdom of heaven. Let's read that in chapter 21, verse 8. 
chapter 21, verse 8 says, but for the fearful and the unfruitful and the abominable and the murderer and the fornicators and the sorcerers and the idolaters, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There will be people that will throw into the lake of fire because they broke the seventh day. Yeah, those will be there too. But there will be some people in the lake of fire that will die, will perish in the lake of fire because they were fearful. Not because they broke the seventh day. Not because they didn't give the tithes. Not because they didn't keep the commandments, but because they were fearful. For the fearful and the unfruitful, these people will also be there with the people that broke the commandments, with the people that did not keep the seventh day, with the people that did not give up Christmas and Halloween and Easter and Sunday. Just for being fearful, some people will be there. Because you must be mature enough to enter the kingdom, paradise. Because if you are fearful and you enter the kingdom, fearful is a sin. It's a sin to be fearful as far as the wrong fear. But there's a, there's a right fear and a wrong fear. I'm talking about the wrong fear. And the wrong fear is sinful. And <clears throat> the wrong fear is like when you don't trust the Lord. When it's clear that the Lord is capable of delivering us. So let's read this verse here and then we'll. Let's go back to chapter 19. Chapter 19. Verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven. Fine linen and white clean will fall. White from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of and he treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of Theos the Almighty and on his thigh, on his robe and on his thigh he has a title written King of Kings and Lord of Lords and I saw one angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in the mid heaven come and assemble for the great supper of the Theos so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. I saw the wild beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the wild beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the wild beast and those who worshipped his image. These two, the Assad and both popes, were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him that sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, devil Satan and bound him up for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nation any longer until the thousand years were completed and after these things he must be loosed, released, released for a short time. So I hope that this has helped you in some way. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience.
them so that you can listen. And we are going to upload this to SoundCloud and then up to TalkShoe. And thank you so much for everybody that has listened this week. And uh, this concludes the sermon. And then this is where I edited it to close here. All of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.